Hello and welcome to the CBSO podcast. My name is Jonathan Bloxham and I used to be assistant conductor of the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra and it's my pleasure to have a wonderful pianist with me today. Uh, perhaps you'd like to introduce yourself, Ben. Hi, I'm Benjamin Grosvenor. Um, I've been to the CBSO many times before <laughs> uh, and uh, one of my favorite orchestras to work with. Um, I'm a pianist based in London. That's me. Well, actually, Ben and I have never met. We're doing, doing this podcast over Zoom, and, but we were meant to have met last week uh, to play a couple of concerts, CBSO, one in Symphony Hall, and so we're both pretty sad to have not done that. But it's very nice to meet you, Ben. In yeah, nice to meet you. <laughs> yes. Um, do you want to say what we were going to do last week together? Yes, well, we were going to do Chopin's Canon Concerto number one. Um, which is very much looking forward to. And obviously a lovely programme also featuring Torjak at Carnival Overture and Beethoven Symphony Number 7. Absolutely. Um, I know that you've brought out a shopping disc this year, which I've been, I think it was this year that it was released or late last year? I can't remember. Uh, this year, the early yeah. this year. Yeah. Exactly, with one, with one of the Ellie conducting. Yeah. Yeah, so right. yeah, amazing. So I was, just, I was doing my research listening for that, but of course we were going to do something completely different last week. Um, yeah. I mean, the Chopin's an amazing piece to do from a conductor's point of view because it's it's I mean doing a concerto is always like chamber music but this mm. is really so intimate and um delicate in that sense wouldn't you say yes it is um, are, they, are they are they pieces you've done quite a lot before um the Vorjak and the Beethoven are ah, the Chopin I've only assisted on so it was but it wasn't going to be my first time because actually I was going to be doing it in China in March for a couple of times, but those concerts were also so it's going to have, yeah. uh, which is a great shame. But so now I've not had a chance yet to actually do it. But this year it was programmed a lot. Yeah, well, I mean, the the ship and the beautifully, as you say, beautifully intimate pieces, um, and the pieces where the, the the role of the piano and orchestra are, are quite unique. I mean, a lot of people often complain about the orchestra writing in the works. Um, a lot of orchestra musicians tend to complain about the orchestra writing in the works, but the, the, the orchestra really does sort of what it's supposed to do in that it provides the support for the piano writing. Um, but they, you know, they are concertos where you could, could obviously, except for the tutti's, take the piano parts and hear them by themselves and be quite satisfied, which you couldn't do really with a, with a Beethoven concerto, for example. Um, and um, they inhabit this beautifully intimate world, particularly the slow movements with the sort of muted accompaniment strings from the orchestra. Absolutely. I mean, actually, although I know I have heard firsthand players complain about these orchestral parts and myself, um, I think they're incredible and they're really hard to do exquisitely beautifully. And I think it really can elevate the piece when as much care is taken over them as they would, as it would be of any other. Uh, kind of mainstream concerts and all the other pieces. Yeah, I mean, it's striking that there's been a number of people who have decided to reorchestrate them, but um, I haven't yet. I'm, I'm yet to hear one that has satisfies me as much as the original the originals do. But it was interesting recording them, um, and also actually last year I did um, with the Doric Quartet the um, versions for string quintet and piano. Um, what's quite interesting when you play that in that con when you hear them in that context is uh, there's all these interesting wind lines, mm. which unfortunately get completely lost in a performance because he doesn't 
doubled the wind lines and especially with the modern piano now they sort of get completely obscured so it was interesting recording them having the possibility to sort of just turn up the microphone a little bit on the wind so those interesting details come through and also in the chamber version you hear those um, more um, strongly I suppose if I were to you know think of improving it in any way that would be maybe one thing that could be done just to stick another bassoon in here and there just to make sure that those things really come through well just to lift the line. I mean, of course, that's, I mean, interesting to kind of talk about that is, of course, the Beethoven. Um, when you're doing Beethoven with the symphony orchestra, often you could say the same thing, because if you're using full strings, all the delicate wind lines themselves get lost as well, even, even in that writing. And so, obviously, using, in the Beethoven, using slightly reduced strings is something, you know, up for discussion often with orchestras. So actually using mm. less strings doesn't necessarily make it necessarily quieter, but it does kind of, kind of you can find different textures. I think. Yeah. Um, is the a piece you love too? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I, the, symphony, the, the Seventh Symphony is, is such an amazing, joyful piece. I, I'm curious to know, um, my, often as a soloist, I, you know, I'll, I'll get asked to do a concerto. Uh, there'll be discussion about concerto, but it doesn't often, of, not often do I hear the context, I suppose. I mean, if I often, I'll be like, can you play this piece? If not, can you play maybe this piece instead? Um, so, what went into your mind when putting together this program? So, I mean, I was um, asked by, of course, Stephen Malik, the chief executive of CBSO, um, to conduct this concert, and already the Chopin had been programmed. And ah. so, I think we were discussing about what pieces to put either side. And of course, these days, you have to take so many things into consideration, how much rehearsal time we have, whether the rehearsal's in the venue or not. Um, because, of course, at the moment, we have to be very careful about hearing protection. So, for example, doing rehearsing massive pieces in wonderful CBSO centers a, a challenge sometimes and so actually we just decided to pick repertoire that you know would work really well and actually for me this is this was quite an exciting return because it was about two years ago this summer that I left my post as assistant conductor so it was my first concert back with CBSO and so right. um, doing two pieces I decided a shop and that I adore and know really well seemed like a really good idea from a very literally just obviously you want to come back and show what you've learned from what I've learned. I wanted to come back and show what I've learned from my time at CBSO um, two years on. Um, mm. Of course, the CBSO for me was a family for two years. I mean, really, I wouldn't be where I am now without them. It's a very, being an assistant conductor is a really fascinating um, position to be in. I mean, before that I played, I was in a piano trio as a cellist. Um, and I know you've played a lot of chamber music with quite a few colleagues of mine, like Tim, Without uh, yes, like this recently as well. I saw. I love playing film music. Um, uh, it's a big part of what I do, and it's what I look forward to most to returning to again once all of this current situation is over, being able to collaborate with other musicians once again. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it was the chamber music quality of music making that attracted me to being a conductor as well. That kind of it, it's a it's a team effort. It's collaborative um, at all at all moments. And actually, I, doing concertos and opera actually are the things that give me the most pleasure half the time because it's going back closer to the roots that I came from in terms mm. of kind of collaborative spirit with other um, other people. Um, obviously, we've never met before. I'm sure some of the CBSO audience know more about you than I do. Um, but I'm interested to know, um, having had this history as a cellist, what, what, when you decided to go down the path towards conducting and what, what was it that initially interested you in that? So I think, um, I don't think there's a kind of like a 
a PR super, super kind of friendly version. I think it kind of just slowly seeped through. Um, I think I, I remember when I was at Menuhin School studying cello, I went to my director of music and I said, you know, one day I want to be a conductor maybe. And he's like, that's really nice, but you really must practice the cello as hard as you can first and be the greatest cellist, read, do chamber music, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And actually, I sort of accidentally his advice. Um, and uh, I was, my, my cello skills were nowhere near anything uh, such as your piano ones, but it was wonderful to spend most of my early 20s until I was about 26 playing predominantly piano trio or piano chamber music. Um, I wasn't in a string quartet uh, officially, but I did a lot of piano chambers. And then at 26, various things collided in life and I decided to just make the leap of faith and follow the kind of some idea and little dream that had been in my head for a long time. Um, yeah. But having spent those, like, those former years of kind of in my 20s playing chamber music was just, you know, the best thing ever. As you know, it is, it is, I mean, I still play a little bit. It's, I look forward to these kind of two or three concerts a year uh, immensely. Yeah, um, I've had, I mean, with all this, you know, free time that we have now, have you, have you found yourself picking up your cello quite a lot? I did a little bit of picking up the cello, um, but towards the beginning. But actually, I found, I don't know how you found it, but I found uh, studying uh, quite challenging. And... Um, I know that you're exceptionally busy a lot of the time too, and it's been quite a busy few months for me. And so I suddenly, I've been found it very difficult to find the inspiration to open school to study, actually. Um, how have, yeah. have you found this time? Um, have you taken it to learn things? Have you taken it to chill out and take a step back? Um, well, at the beginning, I, I thought that I would just simply put the piano to one side. I mean, uh, having sort of suddenly finding myself with no obligation to practice is something that I haven't really experienced since I think I was a child. So in a way it was quite refreshing at first and I, I didn't touch the piano. I, you know, I, I read books and did a bit of gardening and uh, tried to exercise and, and so on, cooking. Um, I had a bit of a setback because I sprained my ankle, which meant I couldn't walk for about a month, which was a pain. Um, was that a gardening injury? No, it was a drugging injury. It was very frustrating. Um, so that was a bit of a miserable time. Um, but then uh, sort of after that, I, uh, in the last few weeks, I've got back to work quite seriously again. And, um, you know, it, in a way, it was a kind of this sort of forced sabbatical or something that otherwise wouldn't have happened. And it was quite, quite refreshing to come away from music and then to be able to go back to it again um, without any sort of external pressures. Um, uh, and um, yeah, I'm playing quite a lot now and enjoying enjoying it and sort of thinking of projects further ahead. It's still obviously a difficult time because you don't quite know. Um, all concerts are pretty much gone until September, and then you, there's a question mark over exactly what will happen at that point. So um, learning new things uh, at some point, I'll have to start focusing on what I'm going to do in the autumn. But um, who knows what will actually take place in the end? What's what's technically your next? program or music in your next program it would be uh rat two with um the orchestra in paris uh, the national national orchestra in paris um which uh, yeah I'm, I'm hoping will happen i think that would be the next concert because the proms obviously has cancelled now um and i did have a concert there uh and i i think yeah that would be the next thing um but i i also have this um concert at wigmore next week um violin and piano in this wonderful uh, live stream series that Wigmore's currently doing yeah absolutely uh, i've already listened to two of them i had a good friend sean shiva this lunchtime 
we were about we're almost just the hour before we were recording this, we played a wonderful recital. Um, and of course, uh, Timothy Rudout is doing one with Ben Baker as well later this month, I'm sure. Other people that you know well. Yeah. Yes, a lot of people I know. It would be strange playing to an empty hall, though, don't you think? How will you find, do you think that would be something psychological would be different? Or do you, when you're playing in front of an audience, do you anyway go into your own world? Or how does that, that kind of, for me, there's always, even though I totally forget there's an audience there sometimes, there's an energy in, it, in the room full of people that's you, something to tap off and you try to tune into. But it will be to find that or to I suppose, fake that um, mm. early. I don't know, how, how, do you, how do you think you'll find that? Scenario? Well, um, I, I'm, I'm just quite, I'm quite pleased I'm doing it with somebody else uh, uh, instead of, I think a solo piano recital would be very difficult. The idea of playing, being there um, in an empty hall and, and, and without anyone to support you on stage. Um, uh, I mean, uh, I, I suppose the closest to experiencing this is when one does BBC Radio 3 in tune, which is a little bit like this, and that you're playing, you know that a lot of people are listening to you, but there's actually only one person physically in the room with you, uh, which would be the same similar circumstances in this, in this week more concert. Um, but yes, I think a piano recital, it would be more, I feel it was more awkward dynamic without an audience than when making chamber music because you've, you, yeah, you don't, yeah, hard to know that you're, you feel like you're playing for, for someone, um, at least with somebody else's communication going on on stage, which um, provides the spark. Well how, well, how about you? Um, what will be your next project? Um, in theory, I have um, an Enigma Variations in Berlin in the middle of September. So let's see what happens there. Um, and in the interim, um, some of my, including my own small chain music festival and also a couple of other friends, small chain music festivals are going to try to do something, I think, during the summer, if we're allowed, maybe outdoors. So again, right. this will probably either involve me organising or picking up the cello. Um, both things I don't like. <laughs> um, and so, um, and actually I'm, I'm, I'm even playing the piano a little bit right now because um, my flatmate's a tenor and he's going to be recording some songs for the Rosenblatt Idol series. And so I'm tentatively um, trying to remember how to play the piano at the moment and learning uh, a Tosti song and a little song by Michael Head and um, some Mozart accompaniments. So yeah, that's quite, that's quite fun to go back to because I was, never, I was never a great pianist and actually really after kind of doing second study at school, really didn't practice ever again. So it's actually, that's been a really beautiful thing to finish and beautiful instrument to come back to during this time. Mm. Actually, when you were running, Ben, and mm. you had your ankle, what do you listen to on your runs? I don't, I, 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 like, I like running in silence actually. Oh. Um, I mean, but since I sprained my ankle, I, I've become, I mean, I, I can't, I can't, still can't jog. It's not completely healed, but, um, I'm I'm rowing on a rowing machine that I have, and when I, well then I listen to Radio Three or Radio Four. My pattern. Um, but it, it strikes me the Carnival Overture would be quite a good piece to jog to, and maybe even the Beethoven as well, because in in parts, because it's so because of the energy, extraordinary energy of the pieces. In fact, the Carnival Overture would almost be the ideal piece to play once this is all over. Absolutely, totally. Yeah, I mean the Carnival Overture is actually on one of my running playlists. I've been kind of. I've been just starting to run 10K two or three times a week. And I have probably one of the bizarrest playlists of kind of a mix of Dvorak and 
Strauss songs and opera mixed with a little bit of drum and bass in between each classical track, just to mix things up, which is a, a genre of music that I've never listened to until this year, but a friend suggested I should do it for running. And so I do kind of, kind of a little overture, some words, something else, and again, band names I'd never even known before. Um, so that's, that's, that's proved at least amusing, even just for myself on my rounds. Um, but actually talking about one of the first pieces I listened to in this kind of lockdown is a piece that I think would also be amazing to, to start with after this, which would be The Creation by Haydn. Um, that's such a just magnificent depiction of the beginning all over mm. again. Um, would yeah. be something amazing to do. If it was a way of kind of doing it, I, I often kind of try to dream up little projects and twist friends into getting involved for drink favors predominantly and so if i could somehow put a, like an orchestra together for a charity concert or something in aid of an aid of something perhaps in london um, and we could do the creation that would be great fun but i'm gonna have to keep thinking about that project for the moment um yeah. obviously we were going to play the chopin concerto, um first piano concerto last week do you have any favorite recordings old ones new ones um i there's quite a number um um uh, of the first in particular, um, I, there's a wonderful recording by Martha Argovich, one she, that she did with the Bardo, um, which I particularly admire. Um, uh, Gina Lipati in the first concerto. I'm thinking also of the second one. I mean, the, it's music which can sort of take quite a lot of different approaches and, and you know, can be seen through the prism of a lot of different personalities. And, and so, there's you know many people who bring different aesthetics to the to to the works which and can be fascinating um in the second i love uh, recording by alfred Corteau, um which <laughs> well i love the piano playing it's, uh, unfortunately he has his own orchestration which um, is one of the ones <laughs> i'm not i'm not terribly fond of um um but I, yeah i suppose the standout one for me in the first would be the Argerich abado recording um and uh, actually, and um, for something a little unusual, there was an uh, Australian pianist, Noel Newton Wood, who died tragically young. And I've always found his recordings of the concerti quite very interesting. as a kind of Mozartian aesthetic that he brings to them, which I find very refreshing. I, I loved Courteau's playing, but I don't know this, this recording, but of course the Casals Courteau, uh, Thibode, Thibode uh, trio recordings are incredible of all those. yeah i love that schubert trio i think the slow movement the way they play the slow movement is just so incredibly beautiful and the way that casal and thibault sort of trade portamenti with one another in a way which probably would be frowned <laughs> would be frowned upon if you did it in a conservatoire these days but uh is completely glorious as far as i'm concerned absolutely well actually no it, it would be frowned upon but Again, one of the geeky things I've been looking at recently is Clive Brown's wonderful book on historical performance practices between 1600 and 1750, which talked a lot about how often in, the, in classical music portamenti was used. And of yes. course, we, we have this, our version of classical approach these days is so strict and formulated sometimes, not always, um, but actually it's much freer than we think sometimes. Mm. Um, do you have any Beethoven favorite recordings of this complete symphonies or, or this or seventh in particular? I, I mean, I was very, have always been very drawn to um, Furtwängler's recordings of Beethoven symphonies. I, I, um, I, I just, I'm very fascinated by him as a musician and the kind of organic, uh, organic quality of his interpretations and his kind of plasticity of the pulse that he could get, which sometimes seems to enhance the structure of the music. And it's quite free the way that he conducted it a lot of the time. 
I, I wondered what your feelings were about him as a conductor and this symphony in particular. I mean, interestingly, I mean, there were, there were reports of Beethoven having extreme rebati when he conducted. And so actually, I think, again, although it might, we might, some of us might be told off for that sometimes these days in, in Beethoven or classical repertoire, I think, again, we have to sometimes reconsider how, uh, how bonkers and how free a lot of the, the greats were. And not, yeah. to, not to be too, uh, uh, you know, worried about the versatility of things that appears on the page sometimes. Well, there's this, uh, there's this quote, and I, I've been trying to try to see what it comes from, but I, I think I actually read it on uh, the Furtwängler Wikipedia page, which was, which I guess Furtwängler quoted himself, which was apparently Beethoven said something like along the lines of that his metronome marks were only valid for the first few bars of the compos co composition, and then natural feeling and temperament should take its course, or something like that, um, which is very much the kind of spirit that Furtwängler has when he conducts. I mean, for me, the Beethoven recordings, there are so many different directions one can go in. Uh, from a conductor's point of view, there's a video online, of course, and, and, and the CD to go with it, of Carlos Kleiber's. Oh, right. Yeah, he was the second name on the... <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I'm sure everyone's aware of that. But of course, I think recently there are so many, well, not recently, but there are so many Hanukkah recordings, very different to each other. He's recorded with live with Diana Phil and with the Orchestra of Europe, of course. And actually, how, hearing how... Um, how the different things he managed to bring out from the, you know, incredible groups is, is fascinating. Um, mm. And um, and just going back to Dvorak, I mean, I think the one on my 10K playlist is Bernstein and New York Philharmonic, which is just sumptuous and, yeah, fun, as you can imagine. Oh, right. Well, I, I don't know that recording, and yet knowing Bernstein, I can sort of imagine it in my, in my head. I, I mean, this thing I've done, actually, on the subject of Dvorak, one sort of listening projects I did um, during this period was to listen to his piano music, which I must say I didn't know very well. And I, I actually didn't realize there was quite so much of it. Um, so having, having listened through to that, and I, I think the piece that struck me in particular is theme and, uh, theme and variations of 36, I think it is, which is a, one of the, I think, the largest scale work that he wrote for Sound Piano, which is very, very beautiful music. And I, you know, it just struck me that it's not often explored. Um, it's been very nice to meet you, Ben. Uh, sadly, not in person last week, but very yeah. nice to resume. Sure, for me too, yeah. I hope we get to uh, work together at some point in the future, not too far away, either yeah. or something else. <laughs> yeah, I hope so, yeah. <laughs>